All right, again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 6. I love that psalm. I didn't pick out the psalms that, that uh, Ben is using. I didn't pick out the dates for those psalms, but I thought, what a wonderful psalm when we consider the book of Job. You know, Job is going to struggle all the way to the end of the book when he hears that voice of God. And if you're going to be here Wednesday night, Ben's going to expound on what that means to hear the voice of God and how that works in our lives. But Job really needs that voice of God as we see him in Job chapter 6. This is Job's first response to his comforters, his not very good comforters. Three friends with, with good intentions. We talked about uh, Eliphaz last week, and he, he was very sincere. And, and he and Bildad and Zophar, they came because they wanted to help Job. They wanted to comfort Job. They wanted to give some kind of help in order to make him be able to move forward with his life. And so here they come to do all of these things, and in his response... Job is going to listen to Eliphaz, and in chapter 6, he's going to look, and he's going to defend his opening statement. So Eliphaz makes very little to know, and probably no is a better word, impact on Job. Job is going to go back to chapter 3, where he's going to say, I'm just, I'm ready to die. This has been way too much. And that was not Eliphaz's intent, as he gave this whole long two-chapter speech to Job. And not only that, but Job is going to defend his weighty words. And by weighty words, Job is going to be pretty bold in his responses. And Job is going to look, he's going to tell us why. So I'll let Job do that as we work through here. But Job does this figuring because of what he's been through, it doesn't tarnish his piety at all. The fact that he's a blameless man. And God at the end of the book actually says, Job said the right things about me, whereas his friends did not. However, Job doesn't say them all necessarily in the right way and with the right attitude. And so we're going to see that as we go through here. He aggressively charges his friends with failing to live up their responsibility as friends. They came. They came from afar. They spent seven days with him saying nothing in his grief. But even as we find during that seven days in chapter 3 what Job has been contemplating, in the coming chapters we're going to find out what his friends have concluded. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because Eliphaz has lacked the insight to comfort or to instruct Job. He came to comfort him. He failed, at least in his first speech. And we're going to find even after his second speech, he's going to fail. He's not given Job any comfort. In fact, again, this is where it would be wonderful to have an audio Bible. Because I think as you watch these discussions develop, as you watch these counselors go through their steps, each time a counselor says something to Job and sometimes spends chapters to do it, Job is more frustrated. Job gets more cynical. Job almost, I guess not even almost, Job attacks a lot harder. The friends that have come because they just have it wrong as Job's looking at all these things. And so you get Eliphaz instructing them and his counsel. Remember the the gist of what Eliphaz told Job last week? Eliphaz basically said, based on this premise, that suffering and sin are inextricably tied together. If you're suffering, you've been in sin. If you're blessed, you've been obedient. And as he looks at this, this is a premise that Job looks at in his own case. He said, this cannot be the end of it all because it doesn't fit with my case. And Eliphaz looks at him and says, Job, if you would just repent, things would be fine. God would just, health, wealth, and prosperity would be yours if you just repent. And Job's looking and says, repent of what? And as we look at Eliphaz, sometimes we can look and say, boy, it's too bad he blew it so bad. But let's be honest. Is Eliphaz's idea a new idea? 
Is Eliphaz's idea an idea that he just has way back in the antiquity that just kind of passes on and nobody believes that anymore? Let's look into the New Testament for just a moment. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus is walking about with his disciples and it says in John chapter 9 and verse 1, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Who does that sound like? Does that not sound like Eliphaz? Does it not make sense to you when you think about the fact of, you know, if something terrible has happened, it has to be the result of sin in somebody's life. That's the premise that Eliphaz is using. That's the premise that the disciples are using. What Eliphaz should have done is what Jesus did. Jesus answers him in that passage in verse 3 and says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now think about the disciples. Does God judge sin? Yeah, you could safely shake your head. Yes, that wasn't a trick question. Yes, God judges sin. Does God bless obedience? Yes, he does. You could shake your head to that too. We're looking at Job and saying, he's going to trick us. We're going to get in trouble. But the problem is, we look at this and we say, God is going to do it on our timetable. Does God always judge sin and bless obedience on our timetable? Those of you who are with us for the study of Revelation, the day is coming. I can tell you, based on that study, definitively, that there will be a day when everyone who's been obedient will receive the blessing that they deserve. Now, sometimes you get some of that blessing in this life, but do you always see it the way you anticipate it? And I could tell you as well that someday, all sin will be judged and judged in a horrendous way. Because an almighty, holy God is going to take vengeance on sin. But do all sinners get judged when we think they should get judged today? You know, if sinners got judged on my account, the roads would be easy to get around in because all those people who cut me off would be judged at the moment and poof, they'd be gone. And I think, God, you, you ought to do that. But what if God did the same kind of judgment to us? And so as we look at this principle, we need to realize, as Jesus tells them, it was not this man or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the message that Job needs, desperately. Because what is Job's question in the midst of all of this that's happened to him? And it has been horrible, the things that he's gone through. Job's question is, why? Why me? I've been following God. I fear God. I I do what's right. And Jesus looks at these disciples and says, this man who's been born blind, it it had nothing to do with him or his parents. It was so the works of God might be made manifest in him. Not only that, but Jesus goes on and explains further. He says in verse 4, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. So Jesus looks at this man and he says, we're all supposed to be working the works of God. And we need to be doing it now. Because the time is coming when we can't. And then the story goes on that Jesus goes on to heal this man. Did Jesus have to heal this man? If this man had better been able to glorify God in his blindness, he should have been content to be blind. And you say, that's easy for you to say. You're not blind. And you look at all of the healing that Jesus Christ did. But did Jesus Christ heal everybody? He healed many, but he didn't heal everybody. And again, that went in with the work of God and God working in their life. And the problem is we're still tempted to think like Eliphaz. Well, if this one's healed and this one's not, this one was obedient and this one's not, what's the sin problem in your life? Now, does sin create problems in our lives? 
Yes, you can shake your head yes on that one too. It does. Will it lead us into difficulties? We all know people it's led into difficulties. And the first thing we should do if we're going through difficult times is say, God, is there something that I've done in my life that I need to repent of and, and get right with you in order to not be under your discipline? But does it always mean that that's the case? And there's the, the, the fallacy in Eliphaz's thinking. Because in Eliphaz's mind, in Bildad's mind, we're going to find out, in Zophar's mind, this is always the case. If you're obedient, you're blessed. If you're disobedient, you're in trouble. And if you're in trouble, it means you were disobedient. And Job's looking at this and he's struggling with all this because God's blessing doesn't seem to have worked like that in his case. And the other problem that we have here is we look at these friends and are about to jump into Job's reaction. You need to understand Job's reaction. Job has a very violent reaction. It is very passionate. Again, I wish we could hear the tonation in his voice. Because Job's frustrated with these friends, but these friends not only took a premise that was true, but they didn't really understand how to apply it and how it works in all cases in life. But secondly, they jumped to an erroneous conclusion. You ever jump to an erroneous conclusions in your life? The question is, why do we jump to erroneous conclusions? What causes that? We need to be careful because based on our, our observations, we assess the situation and we decide, I know exactly why that happened. I know why they are where they are. I know what they need to do to fix it. And you ever heard the phrase of walking a mile in somebody else's shoes? The problem is we don't always know all the facts. And in this case with Job, did his three friends know all the facts? Did they act like they knew all the facts? I reread the first three speeches this week. The one by Eliphaz, the one by Bildad, the one by Zophar. And you know what is conspicuously missing? They never asked Job anything about what happened. They heard about what happened. They sat with him for seven days and they thought about what happened. And then when they began speaking to Job, they jumped to a conclusion and told him how to fix it. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, isn't that why we often get into trouble? Jumping to wrong conclusions is often the result in, if you've now, now that you've shaken your head and said, yes, you do that at times, now you can get upset with me. But it's often the problem is we're just arrogant. We've all done it. We think we know what's going on when we're not God. You know, these three friends were not privy to the conversation between God and Satan. They have no idea how this happened, but they think they know what's going on. Not only that, but sometimes it's our arrogance. Sometimes it's a lack of facts. Sometimes it's a lack of understanding. You're going to find that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they all have spiritual truth and contained in their speeches. They just don't apply it properly in this case. And so sometimes we have a lack of understanding. Sometimes it's a lack of connection with people. You can't fly in and out of somebody's life occasionally and expect that you're going to understand and comfort and be there when they need you. That's why the body gets together all the time. That's why you ought to take advantage of opportunities to fellowship together and to know one another and to really know what's going on in in the lives of people because you're less likely to jump to conclusions if you're walking down the path of life with somebody else. Because they're a friend, because they're a brother and sister in Christ. And so sometimes it's a lack of that connection. Sometimes it's just a lack of sensitivity altogether. You know, some people are more tender-hearted than others. And I remember, and it was a very eye-opening experience for me. I remember when my mom passed away. 
She passed away back in 2006, and I'm preparing for the ministry, and I, I'm doing all this theological studying, and, you know, she'd ask questions from time to time, as moms do. I don't know if she really needed answers or if she just wanted me to feel good about my studies. But she'd ask questions from time to time, and she'd sometimes look at me a little quizzically and say, you know, you need to be careful when you're ministering with people that you're not too harsh. And I would write that off as, well, that's just a mother speaking. You know, but I, I, got her, I got a hold of her Bible. And I was reading through her Bible, and my mom was one of these people who wrote in her Bible. And she would write, and my, my mom had the audacity, I don't know that she ever knew I'd be reading her Bible, but she had the audacity to write next to verses somebody's name and why they needed prayer for that verse. And so I was flipping through it one day, and I found my brother's name next to a verse, and I oh, mom, she's got, she's got wisdom, she nailed that. He needed prayer for that. And then I found my name against a couple of verses. And part of them was, part of them were verses about being sensitive and compassionate to others. And she wrote in, the, in her column, you know, pray that Russ will be compassionate as he gives out the truth. Wow. But you know why Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz were not successful in what they were doing? They lacked compassion. They cared. They wanted to give comfort. They wanted to give sympathy. But we're going to see as Job reacts to this, Job looks at these men and says, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. And sometimes we suffer because God wants us to be an expert for somebody else down the road as someone who gets it. You understand how that works? And I, I think I've given this illustration before, but I have sat beside people who've just lost a spouse and tried to comfort them and tried to tell them that, you know, God's peace will be there, but you know who they want to talk to? Somebody else who's lost a spouse because they get it. And when they look at them and say, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts, it means something. Not that it didn't mean something when I gave it, but I haven't lost a spouse. I remember talking to some of the widows as I visited the widows, and I may have shared this before, but I remember talking to Jean Holen. And she said, you know what I tell widow ladies when they come to see me, and they're lonely and they're frustrated, and they don't, I start serving other people, because I had to learn that lesson. And I'll never forget that because I could eloquently share like Eliphaz with some of these widow ladies and they would look at me and they'd smile and say, thank you, sweetie, and we'd pray, but it didn't hit home. But when another widow lady sat down and said, this is how God worked for me. And God's going to do that for you. But you need to be somebody who's sympathetic and be careful not to be jumping to conclusions like these men did. And instead, what Job is going to do is look at these guys and say, wait a minute, I need to take care of something I'm going to react and I'm going to vindicate myself. Job wasn't looking for instruction at this point. By chapter 6, he's not looking for comfort because he realizes he's not getting any from Eliphaz. He's looking for vindication. He's like, you don't understand. Let's look at what he says here. Number one, things are really worse than you think. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or the, if, is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are food that is loathsome to me. Job bursts out with emotion when he answers, and he says, oh, that my vexation, oh, that my calamity were laid in the balances. And you have this interesting poetic picture again. He's got an old-fashioned balance with a 
tray on one side and a tray on the other side. And it's linked to see whenever you talk to people about going to heaven, they say, well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad. And you picture that kind of a balance. And Job said, oh, that I had a balance for my friends to see. Because on one side of this balance, I would lay my vexation. And that word vexation is the idea of the anguish for the trials that Job was going through. Job's saying, it's worse than you think. You don't understand. You don't understand what I've gone through. And then he said, not only would I lay the anguish on that side, but on top of that, I would lay all those misfortunes. I lost my wealth. I lost my prestige. I lost my children. My wife told me to curse God and die. And he's piling all of this up on this side. And he said, now if you take that in on the other side, and listen to the hyperbole he uses here. If you put on the other side of the scale all the sands of the sea. Y'all been to the beach lately? To one beach? Anybody try to shovel sand up into sandbags ever and carry them around? They're heavy. And Job looks at, if you put all that sand on one side and what I've gone through on the other side, my stuff is going to way outweigh that. You just don't understand. And he looks at them and says, that's why, and this is where Job begins to get into trouble, because in Job's heart and mind, is he wrong about that? Probably a little bit too much hyperbole, but Job looks and says, I'm in anguish. I've lost it all from an earthly perspective. And as he does all that, he says, therefore, conclusion verse 3, my words have been rash. Why does he say that? Job's looking for vindication. You look at chapter 3, and you hear about this man in chapter 1 that's blameless and fears God, and there's no one like him in all the earth. And you look at chapter 2, and God reiterates that whole thing. So when he opens up his mouth in chapter 3, what do you expect to hear Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Should we receive good and not evil from the hands of God? That's what he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But by the time seven days have passed and we get to chapter 3, what does Job say? I want to to die. Is Job worried about glorifying the name of God at that point? He still fears him. He never loses his fear of God. The other wonderful thing about Job we're going to find is he goes from speech to speech to speech. Job's faith is never shaken. He still believes all the things he believes about God. That's why he's in such anguish. He can't put the two together. He doesn't know that God talked to Satan. He doesn't know that God said, here's a man like none other in all the earth. You do your worst to him and this man will not crumble. And Job is in anguish, trying to put these things together. And so he said, you know what? My words are justified. Not only does he say my words are justified in all this because of that, but he goes on and says, not only is there the scale thing, but God's made me the target of his arrows. Again, when Job looked at everything that happened to him, who did he give credit to those things for? He said, God did this. When something evil or bad happens in your life, what's your first thought? I'm under the attack of Satan. Do you, you, do you normally say, I'm under the attack of God? Job's got better theology because he knows God's in control. Whoever brought this, God permitted it or it wouldn't be happening. Is that good theology? It is. You can shake your head yes to that. I'm really not trying to trick you today. You can shake. It is good theology, but does it feel like that? God, why would you make me suffer? God, why would you bring sickness into my life? Why me or my spouse or my child or my grandchild? God, why would you give me a financial setback? I give faithfully to the church. I take care of people around me. That's where Job was. 
Why would you not just continue blessing me so I can do more? Why me? And as Job looks at all that, he's going to realize God's doing this. But what does Job want at the bottom of his heart? He wants to know, why is God doing this? Because I thought I had it all together. Because Job's theology until all this happens is not much different than his friends. If I obey, God blesses. If I disobey, God disciplines. Why do you think he offered all those sacrifices for his children all the time? Maybe they've disobeyed, and if they miss it, I'm going to do it for them because I want God to bless them. And yet Job's looking at this situation and says, something's gone wrong with my theology. Because I obeyed. We're even going to find later, he said, you know, I offered sacrifice if there was any iniquity in my life, and God's not accepting that. So what's the problem? What happened? This should have been the way it is. And when we have an incomplete picture of God, it gives us trouble when we look at the circumstances around us. And that's where Job is. In fact, he has two rhetorical questions at the end of this chapter when he's saying it's worse than you think. He's looking at his friends, and you know what the friends are thinking. They haven't said it, but Job gets it. You know, Job, if you were really right with God and hadn't sinned, how could you be saying the things you're saying? You couldn't. So what's going on? Well, Job looks at him and says, well, let me give you a, a little bit of a story from nature. You know, does the, the wild donkey, does it bray when it's got food? No, it doesn't. Does the ox complain when its trough is full of food? And I'm paraphrasing, but no, it doesn't. And Job's saying, you know what? I don't have either of those situations, so that's why you're hearing from me. And that, that's exactly what he says. In fact, he comes to the end of this and he says, my appetite refuses to touch them. They're food that is loathsome to me. You want to put that in modern vernacular? What Job's saying is, I just can't swallow what's happening to me. Why is God doing this? It it tastes wrong. It won't go down right. Everything else in my life up until this point has worked the way I thought it would work walking with God, and suddenly it doesn't. What am I going to do? And you look and you say, well, Job, just get your act together, but I guarantee you, you're going to get there sometime. The story of Job's here for us to see because Sometime down the road of life, if you're not careful, you're going to come to the point and say, God, how did I get here? I've tried to serve you. You Look around. There's there's people that aren't showing up at church. I'm there all the time, God. You know, I'm praying and I'm giving and I'm studying and I'm sharing and I'm doing everything. So how did I get here? And we need to go back to the fact that Jesus Christ said some of the things that happen in our life happen so the work of God can go forward. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And if he had left Job in this condition for the rest of his life and was glorified by that, would that have been okay? Probably not with Job at the moment. He's still trying to figure it out. But we need to get to the point where we say, God, whatever you bring into my life, if it's going to glorify you, it's okay. How many of you want to be Job? Are there other characters that we talked about this before, but other characters in the Bible you'd love to be? You know, if I could have been David in front of Goliath, wow. If I could have been Joshua going across the Jordan and watching the the walls of Jericho fall, wow. If I could have been Moses before Pharaoh with the plagues let my people go and then walk to the Red Sea and the people are all complaining and God says, I'm going to part the sea and watch the sea part. And the people walk over and drive, wow. But you know, I don't think there's ever been a day when I said, if I could only be Job, wow. Not even for what he gets at the end of the book. He paid a huge price, and I think, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if you could do that, because God looked out and said, there's a man, there's nobody like him in all the earth. That's why he's going to do this. 
And so we look at Job and he's saying all these things. He's saying, you know, it's worse than you think. You guys need to get on board here and understand. Secondly, Job's going to say, this is what I expect from God. Because of the way I live and how I've worked, all of these things. He says, number, verse 8, oh, that I might have my request. That God would fulfill my hope. What is his request and hope? You would think at this point he'd say that God would restore my health, that he'd give me back my family, that he'd give me back my wealth, that he'd put me back where I was. That's not what Job wants, is it? Job says, the only thing I need right now from God, verse 9, if it would please God to crush me, that he might let loose his hand and cut me off. And again, those are very, very poetic and picturesque words in the Hebrew. And what he means is, when he says, I wish God would crush me, I wish God would crush me to death. I wish God would cut me off, God would cut off my life, it's time to go. Job is looking at everything that happened. He says, I can't figure it out, but I know one thing. I've lost the favor of God, and I can't live without it. And if I've lost God's favor, then all I want, my hope, is that God will just finish the job. Job, as he sat there for seven days, was wondering, why hasn't God finished? He took my wealth. He took my power, position and power, my prestige, my honor. He's taken my kids. He's taken my health. When's he going to finish the job? And Job's whole hope was that God would finish it and finish it soon. He's going to talk later about how much pain he's in and how much agony he's suffering is physically and mentally and spiritually and all of these things. And Job just says, you know what, God? Finish the job. You know, we need to thank the Lord that he's wise and generous enough not to give us everything we ask. Think about it. And in Job's case, we look back, well, of course, you know, taking Job's life, we know how the book ends. God's still going to glorify himself in the life of Job. But you ever asked for something and you were sure God should do that? And then you go and you talk to friends and what do you tell them? God is not what? He's not answering my prayers. And what do we mean by that? He didn't give us what we wanted. Does God hear your prayers? You can shake your head yes again. No trick question there. Does God hear every one of them? Yes, he does. Does God want to hear your desires and what you're struggling through and what's going on in your life? Yes, he does. He said, come freely before the throne of grace. And as New Testament Christians, I don't think we understand the magnitude of that. God's saying, come. You don't have to come through the sacrifices at the temple. You don't have to come by offering up all of these things to me because Jesus Christ paid it all. Just come. Bring your worries. Bring your requests. Bring your, your prayers to me. And you can come at any time. And as God looks at Job, Job just says multiple times, take my life. And what does God tell him? No. Now, does he tell him that audibly? No, he just, he just keeps hanging on. And Job's like, why? And God's got a purpose, but Job's never going to know why. And then... Bad enough that he didn't get the expectation that he wanted from God. What's Job's expectation of his friends? If you're going through a tough time, what do you expect your friends to do? When your attitude, now yours is probably always okay. When my attitude's not right, and I'm going through a tough situation, and friends come to see me, what what do you think I want to hear? I want them to be compassionate and commiserate and tell me it's not my fault and tell me they can't figure it out either. And what did Job's friends do? They came and they said, Job, if you'd quit sinning, God would fix this for you. So why don't you just repent? That's their message. Now it takes Eliphaz two chapters to get to that. But that's what he's saying to Job. But Job gets it. And he looks at his friends beginning in verse 14 and said, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. 
I told you, Job can get pretty caustic when he goes after his friends. What's he telling his friends? What should you have done for me? You should have been kind. And they're thinking, we were kind. We traveled all this way and we sat in the ash heap with you for seven days. And then we gave you the truth. And Job's looking and said, there was no kindness there. There's no comfort there. And not only that, but if you really fear the Almighty God, you've done something to comfort me. And you haven't done that. He goes on and says, my brothers are treacherous. You've been treacherous with me. Now, think about the three friends. They're about to really go after Job. Can you understand why? And again, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I, as I read through this, even though they're bringing the truth, I'm guessing that their nature, their fallen natures got involved in their conversation. Do you think that Bildad, after being told he was treacherous, says, there, there, Job, let me give you another piece of truth. I think that Bildad probably got a little bit heated. We, we know Zophar probably did, because he gets even more caustic with Job as he gets through all this stuff. And Job looks at him and says, you know what? I don't think you know the Almighty like you ought to, and you've been treacherous. And then he gives him a picture. Treacherous how? They're in the desert. So he looks around the desert, and he says, you know these wadis, these streams that in the rainy season, and when the snows on the top of the mountains are melting, they flow with water, and then suddenly the dry season comes. And what happens to every one of them? They dry up, and there's no water. And Job's looking and he's saying, I am like a traveler in a caravan, thirsty for water, and you're like these dry wadis. You should have hope for me. You should have what I need. But not only did you not bring me any water, you brought me dry sand. And no hope. And so he's looking at these friends and saying, you know, you've kind of blown at his friends. You've been treacherous. And then he gives them some rhetorical questions. Job really puts them in, his, in their place. And again, you look at this and say, wow, Job's going to get it from God at the end of this. And who gets it at the end of all this? Job's three friends. So Job looks out and he says, here's some questions for you. For you now have become nothing, in verse 21. You've offered me nothing. You've done nothing. And they say, wait a minute, we traveled all this way. We sat in the dust sheet in a heap of dust and ashes. And we, we've been with you. And Job's saying, you know what, every time you open up your mouth, nothing useful comes out. He goes on and he says, have I asked you for anything? Have I asked you for anything at all? And their answer has, to that has to be what? No. And he said, not only that, but you look at me and you're afraid. Now that's it. Job never tells us what they were afraid of. What do you think Job's friends might have been afraid of as they look at Job? Here's what I need to do at the moment. Maybe he's going to ask us to take care of him financially. And what are we going to do as friends? And this is a culture in which they're going to have a hard time saying no. You know, I remember when I was over in the culture in West Africa, is a lot more like it was in the Middle East at this time. And I would have pastoral candidates who were going through and they're studying and they didn't have much money. And when they got a little bit of money, they'd make these bricks and they'd start building walls on their houses. And there were all, it was the land of no roofs on houses because the roofs were so expensive. And I asked them one day, why do you keep buying mud bricks when you can't afford the roof anyway? And he goes, Pastor, you just don't understand. In our families, if we have a few cents and somebody comes and asks for it, it's our duty to give it to them. So if we spend it on the bricks already on our own house, that's fine. But if we've got it in our pocket, we have to give it away. And maybe some of these friends are looking and said, Job's going to ask for some huge financial gift to get back on his feet. Maybe they looked and said, you know what? Being close, close to Job isn't safe. Look what God did to Job. 
We commiserate with Job. What's he gonna, whatever it is, Job looks and says, not only have you done nothing for me, but I look and you're afraid to be with me. And then he goes on and he challenges his friends, instruct me if I've done anything wrong. Look at verse 24. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand where I've gone astray. And that's very interesting because in two whole chapters, what did Eliphaz ever tell him that he did specifically wrong? Not a thing. He didn't know. He hadn't taken the time to try to even find out if there was something. He just looked and assumed because of my theology, if that's where you are, that you did something. So just fix it. And so Job looks to tell me what I've done wrong. And then he goes on in verse 27. And if you don't understand the culture again, you miss what he's saying here. But he says, you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. And he's talking about legal situations where people might owe you money. And he said, you know what? When, when they would go into court and they would have to settle these things in this time period, they would often cast lots to find out what the guy that owes the money had to give up. Whether he had to keep some of his kids into slavery, some of his goods, whatever it was. And Job's like, you do that with the fatherless. You bargain over your friends. You take advantage of your friends. You're not doing what you ought to do. And so all of this is adding to the tension that's there. And then we see chapter 7. Where's Job going to go from this? God has not lived up to Job's expectations. Job's friends did not live up to Job's expectations. So we get to chapter 7, and this is another danger in our lives. But he said, has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Job is getting very fatalistic. He's looking and saying, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's all predetermined. It doesn't matter what I do. And he's kind of resigning himself to it. He's looking and saying, you know, I can't figure this out, so whatever's going to happen, it's just going to happen. Verse 4, he talks about laying down, and then it gets very, very graphic about what he's going through. And I'm not going to try and gross you out by getting all specific, but he talks about the sores and what's happening with the sores and how they, they scab over and then they reopen and they continue to ooze and all the pain that he has and un- being unable to sleep and all this that he's going through. And you think about this and say, no wonder he's a mess. And yet, he looks at all this, and he says at the end of all this, you know what? It is what it is. And I just want to die. God, finish the job. So, that's, he's resigned himself to that, but then he gets into this final section of chapter 7, and Job asks that famous question again. In fact, he asks it very emphatically. Job is talking to God now. Job fears God. So you have to understand the depths to which Job has fallen in all of this, in his despair. Because in verse 11 he says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. Can you imagine saying that to an almighty God? Job fears God. Right to the end he fears God. And yet he is so distraught. He looks at, I'm not going to restrain myself. You need to hear this. You ever get that way in life? I wouldn't say it to God that way. But I look and I would say, you know, God, you know, why, why is this happening like this? Job says, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. And he says, I'll speak in the anguish of my spirit. At least he knows where he's coming from. He says, this is my grief speaking. And I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. What has Job just told God? Because of the circumstances in my life, I have the right not only to complain to you, but to complain very loudly, and I'm about to do it. Do we ever earn that right? When we complain to God, what are we saying? Either God, you're wrong, or you weren't in control. Are either one of them going to be correct? 
But here is Job looking and saying, here's the problem. And he talks about the fact again that he's been made a target by God in some very, very um, poetic ways again, very picturesque ways. And he's saying basically at the end of this, I have no place else to go but you. So let me bring my complaint loudly to you. And God was the right place to go, but it was with the wrong attitude. It was the wrong expectations again. But here he's, he's at least heading to the right place at this point. And Job knows. He talks about in this section about the fact that he is confident that he, he is a sinner. Job's not trying to tell folks that he's never sinned and that he's, he's totally righteous in every way. But he was a blameless man. When he did, he took care of it. He tried to take care of other people. And so he looks at all this and basically he says in verse 21, Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Now think about where Job is. He's still buying in in some, in some ways to Eliphaz's idea that if you're good, if you're obedient, God blesses. And if you're disobedient, God disciplines. And he's looking and saying, God, why are you disciplining me still? Uh, you know, I've tried to confess whatever this is, and I don't even know what it is. And You won't take away my iniquity. For now I shall lie in the earth, and you will seek me, but I shall not be. He's looking and saying that my last step now is to just die. So, so, so God, take care of this because I can't understand why you would do this. Now, Bildad's about to tell him why. Bildad's about to be very wrong. We're going to pick that up next week. But I want to do something as we go through this. It, it, Job can get kind of heavy at times. So what are the applications? Can I give you six things to think about very briefly as we go through this? Number one, be very careful not to jump to conclusions when evaluating the lives of others. Job's friends cared about him. Job's friends came from a distance. Job's friends were sincere, but were sincerely wrong. Remember that things are not always as they appear to be to us. Did God know what was going on? God had it all under control. And even as Job is going through all of this, God is waiting to praise Job for the man that he is. And for the way that he loves God. And yet Job's struggling because Job doesn't see that. Remember, things aren't always the way they appear to be to us. Number three, we're in serious trouble when we believe we have the right to complain to God. Job is seeking, is sinking lower and lower. And part of it is he's saying, look, God, if you would allow this to happen to me, it's my right to complain and complain loudly until you tell me why. Does God owe you a why? Does he owe me the why? He's going to cover that later in this book. Number four, be thankful that God is wise and gracious enough not to give us everything we ask for. If God gave us everything we asked for, we'd be a mess. Just like if, as grandparents, we give our grandchildren everything we, if they ask for. They're a mess, and the parents have to straighten it out. God does not give us everything because of his grace and because of his mercy. Realize that God's still in control, even if we do not understand I guarantee you as you walk through life, there's going to be times when you just do not understand what's happening. But never forget, God does and he's in control. God's not wondering and God's not worried. And then finally, live and react in such a way that the works of God may be displayed in you. Never forget that blind man. Blind from birth. Not for his sin, not for his parents' sin, but for the glory of God. As you struggle, look for the way in which you can react in order to bring him glory because the works of God and the glory of God are the reasons that we've been put here. So let's remember those things as we continue through Job. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an honest look at a man who is blameless, 
righteous, feared you, and yet struggled in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. God, I pray that we learn as we go through this book. May we learn from Job. May we learn from Job's friends. Most of all, as we get to the end of this book, may we learn from an almighty God who steps in and not only corrects and gives some answers and gives admonition to Job, but sets things right according to the way that you've promised they would be. So God, I pray that you'll work in our lives. May we trust you. May we cling to our faith knowing that you are in control. And Lord, may we glorify you in the way that we respond to the challenges of life. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.